we've been going through a series through uh, the Lord's Prayer, and we've entitled it Our Father. And as we've been going through it, we're, we're finishing up pretty soon next week, but we're going to start this morning with a reading from the New Testament and the Old Testament. They should be on the screen so you can follow along. The, the New Testament is James chapter 4, and then the Old Testament will be Psalm 119. Starting in James 4, it says this, So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. And then Psalm 119 says this. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in the riches. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And today, as, as we, we continue on the series, we've made a practice of reciting the Lord's Prayer together. So if you would, on the screen, as well as a handout, there is the Lord's Prayer. So follow along, if you would, and if you're able, can you stand and recite it with me? In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, this morning, God, as we, as we open up the scriptures, God, would you open up our eyes? Lord, many of us, we've been coming to church for years, and we kind of got into the rhythm of expecting a talk in between the good songs. And when we get into the practice, maybe, of writing down some notes and remembering today and forgetting tomorrow, God, would you just open our hearts and not let the enemy steal this word you have for us this morning? God, would we be open to what you want to teach us? May our hearts be moldable for your spirit to move us. God, may none of us walk away from encountering you and being the same. God, you have so much better plans for our lives than us, so many better plans for us than just making it through another Sunday and through another week. God, you, you want us to see that you can fulfill our lives and give us purpose. Another Sunday. May this morning, God, may we walk away changed. Just like Moses, after seeing your face, may we walk away different. And may all this be for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we're, we're going to be in verse 13 of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven. It says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When I first got saved, I was just so excited. I was so excited because I was like, I'm not going to sin anymore, right? I was overjoyed. I was like, no more struggling, no more doing the wrong thing. I was 13, so forgive my bad theology. But I just assumed that following Jesus meant all the problems were gone, that, that no more facing struggles. 
and, and thinking, now that I'm saved, I don't have to worry. Maybe I'll, I'll fall every once in a while just to make other people realize I'm so humble. But, 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 I'll, but I've got it all together now. In theology, we call that an overrealized eschatology, but in real life, we just call that unrealistic expectations. Anyone else feel like that? Anyone else have that idea when they got saved? That when you gave your life to Jesus, that everything was going to be easy now? And that sin was just going to be a thing in the past? And I, I believe that when most of us, when we first come to Jesus, we, we have this high expectation because we just believe, you know, Jesus saved me from my sin, and so I'm changed forever. And there's truth in that. But what I really quickly and almost instantly realized is that though my position with God and my relationship with God was forever changed, my heart still needed work. I still had things to do. There's still more of the old me that needed to die and more of Jesus that came with it. And, and those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, maybe you realized that at the beginning, there's some things you're like, oh, okay, don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. Okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah, let's not do those things. But as you've walked with Jesus for a while, you've begun to realize that even your motivations need to change. Like you, maybe you do the right thing, but you do it for the wrong reason. And as we walk with Jesus for a little bit longer, we realize that there's deeper and deeper junk that he still needs to remove. And thankfully, this doesn't surprise God. It may have surprised 13-year-old Jeff, but it did not surprise God. Because this is not a 21st century problem. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, the, pr the prayer that he taught his disciples, he prioritized the expectation to pray against temptation, the expectation that we will face temptation. But what, is, what does temptation mean? Just a quick definition. The temptation is the pull to following after things that don't follow the way of Jesus. Temptation is the pull towards sin. Temptation is, is the desire to do things outside of his will. It's not sin itself. Let, let me be very clear. You can be tempted to do wrong and not be sinning. But temptation unchecked leads to sin. So, so where does it come from? Where does temptation come from? How do we pray against temptation? And how do we practically resist it as well? Those are some of the questions I hope to answer this morning. But just to recap you, if you have missed some of our uh, series, is that we've been looking at the priorities and practices that Jesus lays out in the Lord's Prayer. He, th th these are the priorities that we should embody in our prayer life. We have seen Jesus' emphasis on whom we're talking to, not just the content of the prayer, but the person that we're talking to. And that his will and his kingdom would be a priority in our life, that we would pray constantly for God's will to be done in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven, in La Crescenta as it is in heaven, in Jeff's life as it is in heaven. And that we thank him for our daily provision, asking each day for what we need. And then last week, as Pastor David pointed out, that we would be a people of forgiveness who reflect the forgiveness we've received. And all of these aspects are so important in helping us see a new way of seeing prayer. That prayer is not asking for something from God, but having a relationship with God. That God doesn't want requests from us. He wants a relationship with us. Yet, yes, we should ask everything we need from him. That's important. That's asking for your daily bread. And yet, God doesn't just want us to stop at requests. He really wants a relationship. The best result of prayer is not getting things from God. It's getting God. That's the best result of prayer is getting God. And today, as we look at this aspect, this aspect of, of asking for God to deliver us from temptation, to not be allowed to, to enter temptation, and also to be delivered from the evil one, we're really going to look at what this looks like in our prayer life. 
But this should strike us as important. Yes, most of us know that we're tempted to do the wrong thing, right? Any one of us in here who has ever tried to not eat cookies for a week knows what I'm talking about. Especially when your wife is a really good baker, no offense. So all of us are tempted in that way. But in the intellectual, intelligent West, we don't like to point out that we also have an enemy of our souls, that there is one who seeks out to destroy us and consume us. And the Bible calls this enemy many different things. The enemy, the Satan, the evil one, the adversary. The most common title we give him is the devil. But Jesus places the priority right beginning of his teaching about prayer, sorry, at the end of his teaching of prayer, to remind us that there are two halves to why we are tempted. The first half is that we have an enemy within. The second half is we have an enemy outside. And both of these enemies must be acknowledged and dealt with if we're going to grow in resisting temptation. When we sin or fall short of God's commands and expectations, we are doing so because we have a sinful nature and an enemy who capitalizes on it. If last week was talking about forgiveness and the need for us to ask for forgiveness of sin, to become a people that reflect that forgiveness outwards, then this week we need to look at, look at this as saying, we don't even want to get to the point where we need to ask for forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is important and so valuable, but God wants us to live more than just prayer to prayer. Oops, I did it again. God wants to lead us in holiness and cause us to be more and more like his son. And so this week, we're going to look at how we fight against sin, not just respond to sin. And once again, I just want us to really notice that there's two halves. But the first half is this. Do not lead us into temptation. There are three main interpretive like, ideas that most people say. The first, and I think that this is the least likely, is that, God, that Jesus is saying to ask God to not tempt us. And even though that may seem to make the most sense of it immediately, it doesn't make sense to the rest of the Bible. The Bible teaches again and again that God is holy and good and only ever desires our good endings. And so it doesn't make sense to say that God is tempting us. And in James 1, it says that God is not tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. So it can't mean that. The second possible interpretation is this, is that it says that do not let us be tested beyond our control. Do not let us be, uh, do not allow so much suffering and trouble in our lives that we walk away from you. That the idea is that God allows tests in our lives. There's a difference between tests and temptation. We don't have time to get into that today. But the idea is that the request is to not be tested beyond what we can handle. And even though I agree with the theology of that, I don't think it makes sense in connection with the second half, which is to not be, to, sorry, to deliver us from the evil one. So the third, and I think the most probable meaning of this, is exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Or another translation says, do not let me sin against you. When I first started college in Riverside, uh, I started a little late, and a little late is, you know, I started at 21, so I wasn't super old, but, I mean, 21 is old at the time. But anyways, um, so when I first got to college, it had been a few years since I had been in school, and I'd kind of, like, gotten out of the habit of studying and showing up to class on time. I loved my classes. I really loved them. But when I saw an opportunity for an excuse break to go to a conference, I was like, sign me up. Let's go. Let's get a couple days off. Let's go to this conference. I don't even remember what the conference was about. Uh, it, was, it was good, I'm sure. I'm sure that lots of people got a lot out of it. But one thing I do remember is I do remember this very specific breakout that was taught by David Nasser. And, and Nasser is a Persian Christian who converted from Islam to Christianity. And he was telling his story of how he be, became a follower of Jesus and how he converted away from 
Islam and to following Jesus and what it cost him and talking to us really about the cost of discipleship and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And as he was telling us, this, he was telling us this story about when he was going to speak at a conference. And, and, and as he was leaving to go to the airport, his son stopped him. And because he wasn't by LAX, he could stop and talk. So his son says, Dad, don't go. Don't, don't leave. Don't, don't, don't go to the conference. Stay home with me. Let's play games. Dad, don't go to the conference. Dad, stay with me. What do you think his response was? Son, I'm the dad. You're the child. I tell you what to do. Don't you dare command me. No, of course not. No good dad would say that. His child was being blunt with him because he wanted to spend more time with him. The son realized that his position in relationship to the father could change the tone he had with his father. And Nasser called this irreverent reverence. The idea that children can speak boldly to their fathers. And that we as God's children can speak boldly to God. In the Old Testament, when it says in Psalm 119, do not let me sin against you, it's a command. It's using the strongest possible tone in the language. Do not let me sin against you. It's almost like yelling at God. Don't let me sin against you. And this is what Jesus is saying, that we can speak to God with this kind of strength and force and boldness, not because we can tell God what to do, but because like good kids, we're like, God, don't let me do the thing that disappoints you. Don't let me run away from you. Don't let my temptation take me further from you. I've been there. I know what it's like to be away from you. God, don't let me go back there. God, don't, don't let me sin against you. Don't, don't, dis- don't let me disappoint you again. Not that God is easily disappointed with us, but because we love being in right, right relationship with him. Our sin indeed may be breaking God's law, but it's also breaking our father's heart. And Jesus wants us to recognize this, not so that we feel guilty or ashamed, but so that we love him more than our sin. Temptation is the lie that God doesn't know or want what's best for us. Temptation says, how could he possibly want what's best for us if everything he says goes against what my nature wants? But the way of Jesus that calls us into, excuse me, into obedience isn't to make us moral beings. It's to give us the greatest possible life. The commands of God show us not just how to be good humans, but to have the good life. And this way of looking at this request makes the most sense of what Jesus is getting at here. He wants us to remind us again and again that we don't want to run from the Father, that we should make it a regular practice to preemptively ask God to not let us go those ways. God is not an unmoved mover. He's a loving Father. And while we don't fully grasp how that works out, it is vital that we see God's love for us and care for us in regards to our disobedience. God doesn't just care if we get it wrong or right as some kind of cosmic killjoy. God cares about our life and what's best for us more than we do. And that's why we can speak so boldly to God, to ask him to not let us sin against him. So that's one half. Do not lead me into temptation, to pray for strength in in response to temptation. And the second half is this, is deliverance from the enemy. In the fourth book of Harry Potter, or movie, if you didn't read the books. I won't judge you. Voldemort comes back. Voldemort's the big bad guy. He's the snake, no-nose face guy, the really weird-looking dude. And he comes back from the dead, and he's, he's back, but no one knows it except for Harry. No one except for Harry has seen it, and so no one believes him because everyone thinks Harry's making it up. Why? Because of the plot. So, um, 
So no one believes that Harry has actually seen Voldemort again and that he killed Cedric Diggory, RIP. But, but the next book comes along, or movie if that's what you watched, and it makes it impossible for Harry to convince people that the enemy is back. No one believes him. So Voldemort works in secret. Voldemort is able to freely work without opposition. Again and again, he thwarts Harry's plans and he goes out of his way to hurt Harry. Because when people don't believe there's an enemy, they don't act like it. If we, <laughs> when people don't believe there's an enemy, they don't act like it. If we don't truly believe there's an enemy against our souls that's actively working against God's kingdom, we won't change the way we live in response. Jesus doesn't just want us to believe there's an enemy. He wants, to ask, he wants us to ask God to deliver us from him. It's not just about good theology of believing in the devil. It's about good life that lives the life that Jesus has for us, which is resisting the devil. Paul and Peter both speak about this later in the New Testament. They, they talk about the reality that Satan wants to destroy us. He's not just the boogeyman that sleeps under the bed. He wants to destroy your soul. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your good life. He wants to destroy the good name of Jesus. He wants to stand against everything God is for. But yet, most of us don't live like that's true. We aren't living as if there's anyone who wants to see us fall. Not that we can blame our sins on the devil. There's not a devil behind every doorknob. We still make our own choices. But just that we need a reminder that we don't just need life improvement. We, we aren't just a few mistakes short of being perfect. We have an enemy who actively seeks to destroy us. And I need to be, I need to be real with y'all. I'm a Baptist in the 21st century. I am woefully under-aware of how real this is. But don't you feel the same? Don't you feel like so many of us don't get it? Jesus talks about this again and again, and Jesus' whole ministry is against the kingdom of darkness, and yet most of us pretend like it doesn't exist. Jesus' own temptations from the devil show us a helpful way to respond, and in a moment we'll get there, but just to look really quickly at the temptations themselves. We see that the devil tries to tempt Jesus in three ways. He tempts him to make his own bread. He tempts him to throw himself off the temple. And he tempts him to worship him instead of God. In each of these three ways, there have been many books written about the different layers to this. We could look at this in regard to Israel's temptations in the wilderness. We could look at this in regards to 1 John. We could look at this in regards to Adam and Eve in the garden. And each of those lenses are important, but there's not enough time today to get to them. And I won't go that far. But they also line up with what Jesus has already taught us to pray. Just think about it. Jesus is tempted to not trust God's provision, to not trust God's will, and to not worship God alone. It's an inverted order, but it's the exact same thing Jesus is telling us to pray for. He is tempted to make bread instead of trusting God to sustain him, asking for daily bread. We see Jesus is tempted to throw himself off the temple so that everyone will know that he's Messiah before God's timing which is in opposition to God's will. And finally, Jesus is told that if he worships Satan, he can have the crown without the cross. Hallowed be your name. So in every way that Jesus is tempted, Jesus is teaching us to pray in regards to temptation. So the whole prayer is actually resistance to temptation, if we're looking at it correctly. Jesus shows us that by knowing the eternal truth of the scriptures and by relying on them, that we can defeat the, the attacks of the enemy, showing us the priority of God's truth in our own battle with the enemy and temptation. And once again, we'll get back to that in a second. Both in our battle against temptation in ourselves and our battle against the enemy who tempts us from without, 
we see that we regularly need to make prayer a part of the process. Not just in the moment of temptation, but before the temptation even happens. Most of our battle against temptation needs to be preemptive, not reactive. It needs to be done ahead of time. It needs to be seen ahead of time. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it says this, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So let's pray for the, the, the awareness to see ahead of time, not in the moment, how we can react faithfully. But then how do we practically resist and overcome temptation regularly so that we can endure it? And there are a couple of ways that we see, again, in our early, earlier text in James chapter 4. Again, look with me in there, in James 4, verse 7. So it says this, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. And then verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. So in these verses, there are three quick steps that we can see on how we can practically resist temptation. Humble ourselves before God, resist the devil, and draw near to God. They should be on the screen for you. Humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and draw near to God. Starting with humbling ourselves before God. We need to be reminded that not only is God our Father who is reigning over all things, but he's also eternally wise. What do I mean by that? Well, most of temptation comes down to believing the lie that God's best isn't what's best for you that what God wants for you is not your best possible life, that what God's will is for your life is not the life that you actually want. Most of temptation is that lie again and again, that that if you follow God's laws, you're actually going to miss out. If you follow God's ways, you're not actually going to live the good life. That's what temptation really is. When Brooke and I first got married, and I probably have told this story before, so forgive me, but we bought a bunch of Target furniture for three reasons. They're affordable, they're durable, and they're cheap. Oh, sorry. They're affordable and they're durable. (laughs) That was on purpose, guys. I'm sorry. Um, But every single piece comes with instructions. Well, here's the thing. If there's six pegs per page and there's 30 steps, I'm not going to follow the instructions. I'm going to do it. I'm smart, right? Pretty much. Um, So I'm like, I'm going to put it together. And I start to put it together. And I realize very quickly that there's a reason why there's instructions. And there's an, if you ever see our furniture, there's an ode to the price, to the pride of Jeff in our living room, where our entertainment center, which is all really nicely like glossy black, it looks really fancy, and the bottom is just particle board. It doesn't match. And it wasn't built like that. I mean, it was built like that. It wasn't designed like that. And the reality is, is that I didn't follow the instructions. And that's what happens when you don't follow the instructions. But, but in reality, all of us are guilty sometimes of not following the instructions because we're self-sufficient and intelligent people. Y'all are intelligent. You're smart. If you weren't smart, you wouldn't struggle with not trying to follow the instructions. Smart people think they can accomplish it on their own. But all of us have stories of particle board entertainment centers in our lives where we end up far from what God designed for us far less than what God wanted for us. And we end up feeling guilty and ashamed of how we got there. This is why we need to humble ourselves. 
again in that moment to remember that where God is leading, that God's plan and God's ways and God's laws are actually for our good, not just on our own way. We know our Father is quick to forgive us and praise God for that. But what joy we miss if we would have just followed his way. God would have saved us from all the pain of sin by following his plan. So when we remember to humble ourselves before him, when we remember that he is eternally wise, that his ways for us are only for our good, when we remember that, when we humble ourselves for that, we can experience the good life he promises. So we need to humble ourselves, but we also need to resist the devil. And we do this just like Jesus demonstrates in the wilderness. We rely on the truth of the scriptures and respond to all of Satan's attacks with them. This means in order to resist the devil, we need to get in the Bible. Or more importantly, we need to get get the Bible in us. Just like the psalmist says in 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The enemy will try to lie to us and drag us away from the way of Jesus, but the scriptures point us eternally again and again back to the way of Jesus. This is why scripture memorization is so important. It's one of the most important spiritual disciplines that I think we often neglect. We leave it just for Awana, but let me tell you, scripture memorization in Awana should be practiced for us every day. We should get that scripture in our heart because that's how we'll resist the lies of the enemy. When we aren't hiding scripture in our heart, we will rarely recall it in our temptation. So I encourage you, just take a moment. Where do you find yourself struggling most often? Where are you most tempted? Where are you most likely to give into temptation to the lie that Satan says? Or maybe it's your flesh. What if you were to find a promise in response to that? A promise from God in response to the lie the enemy is telling you. Do you fear loneliness? In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you fear lack? In Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, you are more valuable than the birds of the air, yet your father feeds them. Do you struggle with anger? James 1 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you struggle with pride? James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For every lie that Satan tells us, I want you to hear this, guys. For every lie that Satan tells us, there's a promise that God gives us. For every lie that Satan tells us, there's a promise that God gives. God wants us to live the good life. He's ahead of us. He already saw into the future before you even existed. And he's got a promise for you to hold on to that's better than any lie that Satan can tell you. Most of our battle against temptation is not in the moment. It's preparation, not reaction. So let's be be prepared for these moments by hiding God's words in our hearts to overcome and resist the devil. So in order for us to resist temptation, we need to humble ourselves. We need to acknowledge that we don't have it all figured out. We need to resist the devil by hiding God's word in our hearts. And we need to draw near to God. I think the reason why that random breakout session from that conference stuck so well with me all these years, and it's been eight years, which is a lot for me, so forgive me. But the reason why it stuck with me so long, I, when I first got saved, I didn't struggle with the idea that God was big and he was in control. That was never a problem for me. I I struggle in a lot of other places of theology that God is still humbling me through. But believing that God was big and in control and and sovereign and supreme and all-powerful, that that was not difficult for me to understand. But to believe that God could love me like a father loves a child, that was hard. And the reason why it stuck with me all this time is because it says something about the relationship I can have with God 
and you can have it too. That God doesn't just want to be far away working on some other project. God actually cares about everything going on in your life. God actually cares about the way your life turns out. He didn't just set the universe in motion and step away. He deeply, deeply loves you. God doesn't just put up with us. God doesn't just allow you to exist. He actually wants you to exist. You're not an accident. You're not here on accident. You exist for a reason. And one of those primary reasons is to be loved and known by God and to love him back. In the scriptures, we see a God who is mighty and sovereign and supreme, yet he loves his creation. He is heartbroken over the sin of his people. And we see in the, the, the God that was revealed in Jesus is a heartbroken over those wandering away. We see a God that's not removed from the scene. He's not working on something else. He, he's actually deeply present in your life daily. And he invites us to know him. This is what it means to draw near to God, is to know that God loves you and actually cares about you. That he's not just putting up with you. He's not tired of you. He doesn't have something more important than you going on. You are the important thing. And this is what the Lord's Prayer is about. More than just aligning our hearts to his and our wills to his and, and more than just resisting temptation and more than just awareness of where we stand in relationship with him by him being almighty and us being sinful, more than just knowing all the right verses on how to respond in the moment, the deep desire of God is not that you would resist temptation, but that you would be close to him, so close that sin is ugly. The goal is that God would let you see him in a way that would make everything else disappear in comparison. Resisting temptation is the result of the right relationship, not the goal. It's not the goal. Friends, if only we could have the right view of God, it would change how we live every day. God desires you to have the best possible life, the good life. That's why Jesus came, to end all the separation, to end all the suffering that we experience because of our own personal sin. He wants to take all that away and give us the good life. But whenever we're actually staying near to him, when we're drawing close to him, when we truly draw close to him, sin really does become ugly. We really see how it really affects us in God. If we really pursue God, like he relentlessly pursues us, we would begin to experience heaven here and now. And this is why we pray for such a thing. Because the only one who can make it possible, it's not you, it's not me, we're not going to work our way into being better resisting temptation. We can only humble our way into trusting the Spirit more. We can't work our way into making God happy. He loves us regardless of what we do, but we can become holy by humbling ourselves to His Spirit, by drawing close to Him, by seeing sin as ugly like He says it is, by seeing Him as beautiful as He really is. The ultimate reason why we should resist temptation is because God is better. Whatever it is that's calling you away from him, whatever sin looks so good, it's worth risking everything that you have. Whatever thing that is that constantly calls you away from him, God is better. He really is. He really is. And his love for you is better. And his way for you is better. And his life for you is better. And I'm not saying that our longings for the wrong things are ever going to end in this lifetime. I'm not saying that. But when we draw near to our Father, the deeper longing of being loved and having purpose is fulfilled in a way that sin can't. Temptation lies to us and says that we can be happy without God. 
but Jesus promises us that life with God is far greater joy than anything we give up for him. I'm going to invite the band up as we're going to close in the final song of reflection. And as we prepare our hearts to finish and close this moment, I really want you to think, think about what, what is it that tempts you? What is it that usually draws you away from God? What is it? What are the, where are the places where you're normally weak? Not so you can feel bad about yourself or beat yourself up, but, but how can we, starting today, begin to live differently because of what God says about his love for you and your opportunity to resist temptation through what he promises? So if I'm honest, and we think about these, these things, I don't know if you guys think we do, Sometimes I feel like maybe my message won't speak to everyone. But in reality, I know a message on sin and temptation, that's all of us. We're all in that same boat. And the good news is if you struggle with anything, you're in a good place. There's no one in here who doesn't. And if they don't, then they struggle with lying. Um, But no matter where we've been or what we've done, our Father in heaven is ready and willing to give us the life, the life with him that we were created to have if we would only just follow him. There are no limits and conditions on God's forgiveness. He offers it freely to all of us who turn from our way and follow his. But but more than just forgiveness, and forgiveness, once again, is so vital. It's It's a foundation for the Christian life we operate from. But God wants us to grow in holiness, not so we feel bad about our sin in the past, but so we can enjoy him fully in the present and forever. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to know our battle plan for everything coming up. None of us in this room know what this week is going to bring. But God promises to bless the small steps of faith that lead to our future joy with him. And no one, once again, friends, no one has ever given up more to follow the way of Jesus than they've received in him and in his fulfilling presence. May this morning be the day that we choose to say no to our enemies, no to the enemies within and without. And by the power of the Spirit, may we humble ourselves, may we resist the devil, and may we draw near to God. And, yet, and may we be a community that chooses the narrow path and yet easy yoke of Jesus, knowing that when we receive him, everything we give up is so much less than having him. Father, you're so good. And each of us in this room, if we're honest, God, there have been times, maybe even this past week, maybe even today, where we have chosen to do things our own way. And we've chosen to do things in a way that isn't the way you called us to. And the enemy wants to lie to us and tell us that one, that if we sin, it's not that big a deal. But, and then two, if we, if we have sinned, that God can never forgive us. But both of those are lies. Because we know what Jesus has done. We know that Jesus has died in our place for our sins. We know that Jesus has risen again and there's victory over sin and death. And even though we believe in that victory, we still experience small failures here and there. But God, you don't want us. You don't want us to give in to those temptations. Not because you're some cosmic killjoy but because you're our loving Father who would prevent us the unnecessary pain. And God, you have the greatest possible ending in mind for our lives. You have the greatest story written for us if we would just submit to your will.
if we would just turn from our ways and turn to the way of Jesus. We would experience the joy it is to be with you and to know you and to walk with you and to have fulfilling purpose that sin can't give. So this morning, God, if only just one of us, would you draw someone even now closer to yourself? Would your spirit illuminate things that we've been struggling with for years? And what would, would, would you find, help us find, help us find a person or a promise that would help us walk through this battle? most of all, God, may we walk away not forgetting that you love us and your will for us is only ever for our good and for our peace. We thank you that you love us and you've done everything possible to make the relationship with you possible. So we thank you. We're just so grateful for who you are, God, and that you love us. In Jesus' name.